What do you have in store for us this summer? That's a good question. Well, I don't know about the summer, huh? I guess I should begin with what we have in store for the spring. I feel that we are in the midst of the most critical period in our nation, and the economic problem is probably the most serious problem confronting the Negro community. And I might say the most serious problem confronting poor people generally. And I think the time has come to bring to bear the power of the direct action, the nonviolent direct action movement on the basic economic conditions that we face all over the country. Listeners, Isaac here, and I'm doing a little bit of a solo episode. I've been told that one of the flaws is when I'm not talking to another person, say my co-host Peter on this podcast, that I tend to talk a little bit fast. So I'm going to try to talk at an easy, deliberate pace for this episode. First up, I'd like to give you a few updates on the show. You know, we're trying our best to keep up with our prior goals of month, in spite of the fact that both Peter and I started new jobs and they've been pretty demanding. But for this episode, it's not going to be a full-on discussion story. It's going to be about something that I've researched and had an interest in for a long time. And that is the Martin Luther King assassination. And importantly, the events leading up to it and the events after it, the King assassination is kind of given short shrift as the the third rate conspiracy that people will research for the 1960s. Whereas, you know, the JFK assassination, RFK assassination is kind of cast as this moment in which the dreams of the country and the, the bright future ahead were dashed and that the subsequent neoliberal hell <laughs> that descended upon us is kind of explained by the assassination or it's given a, a kind of a right-wing cast where the death of John F. Kennedy is somehow linked to the Federal Reserve or some nonsense like that. The King assassination doesn't neatly fit into either of those narratives, even though in many ways, it's a far more straightforwardly significant assassination, one that we're familiar with from studying assassinations and political murders in other places in the world, which is an attempt at regime repression or right-wing repression of someone leading a trade union and mass popular movement. From the death of labor leaders in places like Chile, Argentina, Colombia, Italy and so on, when those happen in other places, we tend to ascribe it to a kind of an obvious attack that occurred amid a popular or political struggle. 
trade union leaders are killed off because they're campaigning for workers' rights and democracy and generally threaten the ability of holders of wealth and power to keep their power or keep all of their wealth or their control of wealth producing processes. It seems as obvious and academic as that. And the King case is one in which King was assassinated, not just as he was on his way to leading the Poor People's Campaign, which would have a, a massive occupation of Washington by marchers in 1968, but also as he was repeatedly going back to Memphis, Tennessee, to support the strike of public sector workers there, specifically the sanitation workers. The class structure in Memphis at the time was such that you had white mayor, white city councilmen running the show and doing the least paid and least compensated and least protected work were African-American workers. And specifically on the trucks, it's almost entirely African-American workers because in the segregated, brutally racist, and frankly, you know, pretty poor city of Memphis, Tennessee at the time, that was considered a good job if you could get it in the African-American community. They had no labor protections. If they showed up just a minute or two late, they were fired summarily. And there was an incident that prompted King's original visit to Memphis, where two workers who were sheltering from a rainstorm inside the garbage chute compactor portion of the garbage truck were inside it at the moment that a short short circuit or a, a misfiring fuse turned on and turned on the trash compactor and killed one of them. And this was considered kind of the last straw as far as the working conditions of, of these workers. And at the request of several Memphis ministers, King came in, in part to kind of draw a parallel between these workers' struggles and what he was trying to achieve with the Poor People's Campaign in Washington, a campaign that was going to use ma mass action in the form of large crowds and demonstrations directly at the Congress and in front of the Capitol on the Washington Mall, occupying it for uh, weeks on end if necessary in order to disrupt Washington until they considered a, a budget that would provide housing, employment, and a guaranteed income to every American, I should say, of any race, creed, color, gender, whatever. And in that sense, the King assassination is less of a Rorschach blot that you can project onto, you know, whatever your pre-existing personal explanation is of why things in America aren't great. And instead, it stands as a a pretty straightforward political balance of where we could have been in some sense had the poor people's campaign succeeded. And there was no guarantee that it would. But the interesting aspects of the, the King assassination and also the kind of layer upon layer of half-truths and bullshit and speculation that piled up on top of the assassination was something that I had only been really vaguely familiar with from the late 90s because King assassination stuff, namely the campaign by his family to have the gun that was allegedly used to kill him uh, 
retested to see if the rifling made by that gun when it shoots a bullet actually matches the bullet that was taken from his body. In other words, did the bullet that killed him actually come from the gun that was found? Uh, that kind of came up on news occasionally. It was really treated as a kind of tabloid sideshow. As far as my childhood memories can remember it, but it was treated in the same way that it is now as the kind of the the sideshow or the lesser known, dirtier, grim, grittier assassination to the ones that people were always interested in. But I love the King case. It's a political killing. It is the dirtier, grittier, grimier assassination of the 60s. And I would argue to any of you and to anyone listening, that it's the one that everyone should be paying attention to if they decide that they want to research it. Because boy, does it get weird very quickly. I first came across the, the weirdness and the things that matter to people who reinvestigate the King case, and read about the King case. When I read an article that was in uh, Mark Ames magazine at the time, The Exile, or at least the online version, by a guy named Mike Golden, who confronted, uh, well, at the time, plagiarist Gerald Posner, who just has a really strange face. I know I keep mentioning that, but he really does. But plagiarist Gerald Posner, admitted as plagiarist Gerald Posner, about all of these oddities with the King assassination. And I learned, or rather, I was put on to stuff about why were the bushes cut away and was James Earl Ray who was the convicted assassin being manipulated by a person named Raoul did Raoul exist and so on and it seems as though unlike with uh, many other assassinations or public conspiracy theories it seems as though people in the king assassination world are speaking an entirely different language and have entirely different reference points than anyone outside of it so I'd like to take this little detour of an episode, uh, a detour from our Hoffa series and a detour from historical research in general, to just talk a little bit about the miscellaneous oddities that I found over time in my own King assassination research. And the big reason for this was Peter and I had been planning to do, you know, a King case series uh, for a while and hopefully put it around the Martin Luther King Day. But with each time, we can't quite bring, or I really, really, I can't quite bring the narrative together into some kind of coherent way. It just hasn't quite been explained yet. And let me start off by saying that over time, I found that some King assassination researchers and books about it are much more credible than others. Maybe some of the listeners are familiar with the work of convicted assassin James Earl Ray's attorney, William Pepper, and his three books. And I have to say, of these, the first book is really the one with a great deal of research and investigation. The other two are chock full of really quite out there theories that and, and testimonies that just don't have any substance or evidence behind them and were largely brought about i think by a kind of a desperation to get to the bottom of this case 
and to take anyone's word at face value in order to get to the bottom of it. So he ends up believing a lot of people who shouldn't necessarily be believed and whose stories contradict each other and contradict themselves and so on. But the work that I'd like to put on to listeners' radar is the work of a University of Massachusetts professor, a guy named Philip Melanson, M-E-L-A-N-S-O-N. Now, Phil Melanson got into this case not as an attorney for either side, but as a political science researcher into political assassinations, and he taught courses on political assassination. Philip Melanson is an expert on political assassinations. I'd researched the case and was mind boggled at the controversies and unanswered questions. He reads thousands of declassified documents, including King's FBI and CIA files. He started studying the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination in the 80s, the early 80s, in fact, as I found from reading Melanson's papers, and begin just trying to look at the case from a more objective perspective, and he would steal man his own arguments. But the odd thing with the King case is it seems what seems obvious at first falls apart the moment that you pull on any thread of the tapestry. Melanson's books on the case, uh, especially his most extensive one, don't have good titles. The first one was titled The Merkin Conspiracy. That is M-U-R- K-I-N, Conspiracy. And that's a kind of a cheesy title that's taken from the fact that the FBI investigation of the King assassination had the code name, or rather file name, Merkin, for murder of King. So M-U-R, murder, K-I-N, King. Not hard to figure out there. The FBI likes their little contractions of the crime and the subject. So the Atlanta child murders were titled AT Kid. The Oklahoma City bomb investigation was OK Bomb. The investigation of the murder of Judge Wood by Woody Harrelson's dad in Texas was titled Woodmer for murder of Wood. You get the idea. Anyways, Phil Melanson looked into what was one of the most bedeviling and still unexplained aspects of the case and came up with his own explanation. But that requires a little bit of a background on the case itself. Now, as anyone can look up with Google, Martin Luther King was killed at around 6.01 p.m., or really 6 p.m., on April 4th of 1968, as he was on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel, now the National Civil Rights Museum, or at least so-called, in Memphis, Tennessee. Soon after the assassination, by which I mean within just a few minutes, police came upon a bundle of items that had been dumped outside a kind of toy slash jukebox store called Knipes Amusements. And that bundle contained everything from beer cans, shaving blades, shaving cream, uh, old transistor radio, and most importantly for the police, a rifle inside of a rifle box. And that rifle a firing 30-06 ammunition, 306 ammunition, had one single expended cartridge right in the chamber, as if, you know, it had just been fired. So 
Naturally, the investigators thought King was felled by one shot. Here is a rifle with one expended shot. You can draw conclusions from the rest there. Interviewing witnesses nearby and in a nearby rooming house owned by a person named Bessie Brewer, the police found that there was a character who, unlike the other parts of this really run-down, working-class to just poor, unemployed part of Memphis, there was a guy sharply dressed in a suit and tie and slick back or comb back hair who matched the description both of a person running out of the bathroom inside the rooming house and closely matched the description of someone who dumped off the bundle, according to the people who were inside Knipe's amusements at the time. This man, they, they learned, registered at Bessie Brewer's rooming house under the name John Willard. But items inside the bundle, when the FBI traced them, matched to a person named Eric Galt, also, or also known as Eric S. Galt, and to a person named Harvey Lohmeyer, the buyer of the gun. After kind of working their way through these identities and deciphering fingerprints and trying to match up the fingerprints to various convicts, what they found was that Harvey Lohmeyer, Eric Galt, John Willard were all one person. And that person was James Earl Ray, a rather clever, tricky escape convict who had managed to smuggle himself out of the Missouri State Penitentiary and had been on the run for the better part of a year. Ray himself had driven out of Memphis in a white Mustang that he had only bought just a few months before 1967. And this immediately seemed to point to, well, whatever this guy's motivation, James Earl Ray, an escape con using fake names, who bought the rifle, which has his fingerprints at least on the box and on a part of the rifle, although there's some disagreement about that. This is your guy, no questions about it. And it does seem to be a clear-cut case. Where the case gets strange and fell apart is how did he do it? As anyone who studies the King case knows is that there appears to be there appear to be two vantage points in which whoever the rifleman was could shoot Dr. King as he stood on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. One was the bathroom of the rooming house where witnesses, although they're drunk, <laughs> seem to see someone running out of the bathroom right after the shot. And the other is in the backyard of the rooming house. Now, just to visualize it for our listeners, the rooming house and its backyard are across the street from the Lorraine Motel. And this street from rooming house to backyard to street to the parking lot of the motel and the motel itself it's all on a decline. So the street is uphill from the hotel. The backyard of the rooming house across the street is way uphill from that. And the backyard itself steeply slopes upwards till you get to the rooming house owned by Bessie Brewer, 
where that bathroom is, and that bathroom is higher than that. So everything actually is higher than the balcony that King stood on once you get across the street and up to this rooming house in his backyard. So seeing as there were witnesses who said they saw a guy run right out of the bathroom, and even one of the rooming house tenants asked him, what was that? Or was that a shot? And the person answered, yeah, that was a shot. And we'll just say for the sake of argument that the person's James Earl Ray. Once the bathroom was examined, things appeared to go and match, but other things appeared to show that no shot could have been fired from there at all. The police find what they think are smudges. They theorize they're from shoes in the bathtub that is against the wall, which is against the, the window of the bathroom. But if you were to try to put a rifle through this window, you'd be obstructed by the fact that you're kind of caught between the bathtub and the wall. You wouldn't actually be able to get out the window. And to try to demonstrate how someone would shoot out the window, in 1968, two journalists from Paris Match Magazine went over to the Lorraine Motel, got in, and were asked to try to show how you would be positioned or how James Earl Ray was positioned in order to shoot out the window at Lorraine Motel. And instead of, you know, putting themselves in, standing in the bathtub, which they found impossible, they had to stand like kind of legs akimbo, one foot on either side of the bathtub and hold the rifle at this unnatural angle and point downwards, all of which made it seem very unlikely that they could have shot out the window. But the other clue the police found actually presented even more problems. They saw a dent on the windowsill, and the window was open, and the screen was out of it. But that dent on the windowsill, they immediately thought that must have been from the, the kind of concussive reaction or a rifle laying on the windowsill and firing a shot. So they took the windowsill out and they sent it to the FBI. Later on, a firearms examiner and blood spatter analyst, which he's been somewhat discredited on, although I'm of two minds about that, and ballistics expert named Herbert McDonald, who was brought in as an expert on the case, looked at the dent on the windowsill and quickly realized, just looking at it, that if the rifle had been put on the position on the windowsill that they wanted it to be for it to make the dent, the only position in which it could have made the dent, then the shooter, just by how long the rifle was, would have had to have been inside the wall of the bathroom. They would have had to like clip through the wall, like a early 90s Doom video game in order to still make the shot or frankly, just in order to make the dent on the windowsill. But more importantly, the FBI actually examined the windowsill with spectrographic analysis where they you know, bounced different types of light across it and found that there were no gunshot residues on it at all. There was nothing that you would expect from a rifle having been shot on that windowsill at all. There were also no fingerprints belonging to Ray found in the bathroom and all of this raised the issue of, was there actually a shot fired from the bathroom at all? And in line with this, a lot of King researchers reinvestigating this, including 
an investigator and conspiracist who became attached to the case, Harold Weisberg, began re-examining the witness accounts from King's assassination and found that at least some people, namely Solomon Jones, his driver, mentioned that they thought the shot came from the bushes, that is the backyard of the rooming house, and not the window. And they thought they saw a man having just fired a shot from the bushes in that backyard, take a kind of a cover, a sheet off of his head, walk away from the rooming house and blend into the crowd and disappear. That's a deeply frightening situation, of course. So those are the basics, the oddities of that crime scene. And I think it's become clear to me, at least in researching this case, that James Earl Ray is not uh, a totally uh, innocent party. Now, there are many other reasons to think that James Earl Ray didn't act alone and that he may have been something like a wheelman or an accomplice or a flunky in how he participated in the assassination. But that's going to have to be discussed on perhaps another King Assassination Notebook episode because there are just so many leads to do with Ray and who assisted Ray. Specifically, Melanson found that Ray's aliases all turned out to correspond to real people who all lived within 1.5 mile radius in Toronto, Canada, a city which Ray never went to until after the assassination. And that his main alias, Eric Galt, turned out to correspond to a person who, if you were to give his physical description on, say, a wanted flyer, it would correspond to Ray, right down to the fact that he had a scar on his face and on his hand. Same hand and same side of face. All pretty haunting and strange. In my counting up of the people who were observed confirmably to be with Ray, assisting him after the assassination and meeting up with him before the assassination, I found that he meets with at least six people, none of whom have been identified, and possibly 10 in total in the period just after the assassination and his flight to Canada, then England, then Portugal, then back to England before he's finally arrested. There are uh, many, many rabbit holes with how Ray could have accomplished any of what he accomplished in the year following his escape from the Missouri State Penitentiary and how he could have ended up in Memphis for the assassination and escaped afterwards and why he was trying to go to Angola. But those are going to have to be discussed on another episode. This one, listeners, I'm going to confine to just what I'll call the FBI lead. If Ray wasn't the shooter, that begged the question of why did he buy the gun? And there was another oddity that stuck with me from the very first time I read about this case to where I went, oh, oh shit, this might actually be a real conspiracy involving others besides Ray. 
And it's one in which even the House Select Committee on Assassinations that reinvestigated the case in 1978 also thought indicated some kind of conspiratorial action by Ray, although they tried to pivot away from the notion that it involved you know, government actors. And that was what happened when Ray bought this gun. Because first, James Earl Ray walked into a gun shop, well, actually a sporting goods store called the Aero Marine Supply Store in Birmingham, Alabama, on the 29th of March of 1968. So we're only talking a few days before the assassination. Not exactly unsuspicious behavior by anyone. He walks in the Aero Marine Supply Store, and according to the owner, a guy who I believe was named Robert Wood, doesn't appear to know like jack shit about guns or anything. He says that he wants a rifle to go hunting with his brother. What's a good hunting rifle? And he walks away with a 243, 243 Winchester, bolt action rifle. He calls in the same day and tells Wood that he bought the wrong rifle or that the rifle was no good and that he wanted a, and he sounded like he was reading from something, according to Wood, a Remington Game Master. This stuck out in Wood's mind as a gun shop owner because the people who come into his shop, Alabama good old boys and bad old boys all the same, didn't use the word Game Master, which is like kind of the formal official title of this gun. Uh, or a subtitle of the gun, and it really stuck out how uninformed this guy seemed. But this guy, Ray, told Mr. Wood of the Air Marine Supply Store that the gun was no good, and then his brother told him to get a different one. And so he'd be coming back in tomorrow to trade in that first rifle he bought and get a second rifle, that Remington Game Master. He then walks in, and trades in the rifle, gets the game master, and has some ammunition thrown in to boot. In Ray's account, as with most of the things that Ray says, he acts entirely at the direction of a shadowy person who he only knows some aspects of named Raul. And in Ray's account, he bought the first gun, showed it to Raul. Raul said that this is no good that he was supposed to get a Remington Game Master and sends it back to the gun store. In Ray's account, Raul is trying to exhibit a rifle to some potential buyers in a gun running operation. I'm not even going to go through that account of things. Regardless of who's examining this, whether the FBI or the House Select Committee on Assassinations, or even to some extent, Gerald Posner, and other writers who all believe that Ray is not only guilty, but is the sole guilty party of King's assassination. This is beyond strange. How does he go to the gun store to buy the gun without knowing anything about the gun? Why, does, why, why wouldn't one good gun be just as good as another? And why does he say that he's, his brother is ordering him to do this? Now, the House Select Enemy Assassinations came up with an explanation for this. They claimed that his brother was, in fact, his brother, Jerry Ray, and that maybe James Earl Ray called his brother Jerry Ray 
also a criminal, although it's really his brother, John Ray, who is the real stick-up artist and bank robber. And they, this brother informed him that that gun, the first one, wasn't a large enough caliber, which is totally wrong. Totally wrong. In fact, if you want to know why it's so wrong that a two forty three could do it, please note that Charles Harrelson, uh, Woody Harrelson's father and accomplished hitman, used a two forty three Weatherby as his sniper rifle of choice when assassinating federal judge uh, Wood in Texas. So two forty three just fine. Maybe not a two forty three Winchester, but a two forty three Weatherby does a job. That caliber is not too small to kill a human being, at least to an informed party. Well, let's back up. The hypothesis that's entertained by pretty much all of the conspiracy side, people re-examining the King assassination, is that the reason the gun was swapped out is so that the gun that was obtained matched the caliber that was going to be used by the actual sniper. So... When the rifle was found or thrown down or dropped conveniently for someone to find, say, in its box, that the people examining it would be able to say, oh, the bullet could have come from this rifle right here. And indeed, that's what happened. The bullet was that was pulled from King was found to be consistent with the rifle, and it would only be later tests much later on around 1997 that would raise questions about whether in fact the bullet that was pulled from king which is often called the death slug could actually be ballistically matched to the rifle that was bought by ray for the second time but just so you're keeping up here just to reiterate the point the theory is is that the rifle that ray originally got he just got by asking like What's a good rifle? Then he went back to whoever was handling him or advising him or buddied up with him on the conspiracy. And they said, that's not the right rifle at all. You need to get a Remington Game Master 760 in .30-06 caliber, with the reasoning being is that that was the exact rifle that the shooter would be using later on on Dr. King. The other thing I want you to understand is this, that it didn't cost the nation one penny to integrate lunch counters. Well. It didn't cost the nation one penny to guarantee the right to vote. But now we are dealing with issues that cannot be solved without the nation spending billions of dollars and undergoing a radical redistribution of economic power. Yeah, yeah. Dignity. Yes. But you are doing another thing. 
you are reminding not only Memphis, but you are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. opportunity to help bridge the gulf between the haves and the have-nots. The question is whether America will do it. There's nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. The real question is whether we have the will.